You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. And we are going to read from verses 1 to 13. But now, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your, sa- your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? Well, tomorrow, more, uh, sorry, Tuesday morning, I have to give an assembly address and uh, I had to prepare it well in advance. Otherwise, uh, I think I probably would have just uh, given them these words, because I think these words are very apposite to the church in Scotland today, because this is really a reaffirmation of God calling his church to serve him. In the previous section, the church has been called blind and deaf and a recipient of the anger of God. And then look at uh, verse 1. Let me just move it on to there. But now, always in the Bible, big clue for reading the Bible. Always in the Bible, look for words like but. Because obviously it, it connects what has gone before and it helps you get things in context. And what is happening here is God is saying to his people that they are blind, they are deaf, they receive God's anger, they are inattentive, they are defeated, they are disobedient, they are spiritually ignorant and insensitive. And what will God say? Now, if you think about it, supposing you are actually conscious of that. I mean, you might be sitting here and you might be pretty, the jargon is at ease in Zion. You're fairly confident things are okay. But it might be that in actual fact, you are feeling that you've let God down, 
There's a lot of things in your life that are wrong, that there are sins that keep coming back, that you have been blind and insensitive. What would you expect God to say to you? It's like um, maybe as those of you who've got children, as your children are getting older, and uh, they do something that's really wrong, and they know that it's wrong, and you ask them to come and see you, and there's... You can see in their eyes the fear. At least I hope you can. I hope they're not just kind of, ah, I did something wrong, tough. Um, you, you, you can see that they're scared of what's going to happen because they know that you'll not be particularly happy. And yet, they're astounded when you speak to them, not condoning what they have done, but with words of grace. I think the picture here is of God addressing his church, helping us see what our sin is, but telling us, reminding us who we are. I think this is an incredible description of grace given the preceding passage, hear you deaf, look you blind and see. It's interesting, people talk about the survival of the church. Apparently, the uh, Herald newspaper yesterday had a sign saying, had a column saying, now is the time for the renewal of the church. And I, I, I went and got it and had a look at it to see, wow, this would be great if the Herald was going for, but of course not. It's just simply, it, it's like a political party. They're saying, having accepted same-sex things, now the church is going to be relevant and everything's going to be great. And those of us who know the word of God and those of us who know the Lord know that that's not true. That's why our hearts are so heavy about Um, what has happened but God saves his church the church of Jesus Christ will never perish church in particular areas can perish there was a very strong church in North Africa there was a very very strong church in Turkey there was a strong church in Italy and these churches have all declined. I had the privilege last week of being in a, in a very strong church in uh, North America, in Ohio. And uh, at the pastor's conference there, there were 1,200 pastors. It was quite funny because they said it was a small pastor's conference. You know, and I'm going, yeah, right. <laughs> and yet, what, one of the things that for me stood out, most of the pastors are what they would call blue-collar pastors in small churches, really, really struggling and wondering, how come this is happening to us? They, they see bigger churches in the States and churches doing very well, but for most of them, I got the impression anyway that they were just being overwhelmed by the changes in their society and culture at a very, very rapid level. And um, I, I probably wasn't the most cheerful of, of preachers to have with them because I, I said it's going to get a whole lot worse. You know, that's the way that things often happen. But the comfort always in this, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ's church. Why? Well, these are the reasons. And um, the first is simply this. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. The church of Jesus Christ and the believer will not perish because we are created by God. Now, back in chapter 40, Isaiah had said, look at the great universe. Look at the stars. Isn't it amazing? And it is amazing. 
there are basically two options that occur here when you look at the stars. I think the atheist looks at the stars and goes, wow, wow, we are stardust, which is really quite impressive. But the Christian looks at the stars and goes, wow, the God who made those stars is the God who made me. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Sometimes you, be, you meet a young person, maybe a young teenage girl or whatever, and, and she's got huge issues about herself and self-esteem and her body and everything else. And, and, you know, people will try and bring comfort in different ways. I think the greatest comfort is just simply to say this. You know that God made you, and he made you wonderful. He, you are fearfully and wonderfully made Well, that is true of our our physical bodies, but it is also true of God's church. God is the craftsman. God is the master potter. God is the gardener. And he brings us together as his church, and he will build his church. If the church was the Church of Scotland or the Free Church of Scotland or Joe Bloggs' church, it's not going to stand against the gates of hell. But the church of Jesus Christ will always stand against the gates of hell. Sometimes we are very, very fearful because we think if we raise our head above the parapet, if we dare disagree with the ongoing culture, we'll just be swamped. And we would be if it wasn't for the fact that we are the church of Jesus Christ. I was greatly struck by what Harry Millier said, which it's played on my mind ever since he said it in the marvelous seminar he did on Islam. And he was talking about Iran And he said this, that when the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in Iran, the church leaders in Iran saw him as the servant of the devil. And now they see him as the servant of God. Because the church has been blessed so much in the midst of that storm. We are brought together as the church of God. I love that fact. I hate the idea that anyone would look and say, well, this particular church is the church of that minister. I mean, for me especially, in, in my role and job as a minister of this church, this is not my church. I don't want it. I'm sorry, I love you, but I, it, it's not my church. And I really don't want that degree of responsibility. It's God's church, and he will build it. So it's a great comfort that we are created by God. Secondly, we're redeemed by God. Fear not, he said, for I have redeemed you. We get scared by so many things. And the direct answer that God gives, that's a line of, just for me, of enormous comfort. Why are you afraid? Why are you scared? I've redeemed you. Not somebody else, but me. And I haven't just challenged you. I haven't just provoked you. I haven't just given you laws. But I've actually done it. I haven't told you go out and save yourself. I have saved you. Blind, inattentive, defeated, disobedient, ignorant, and and insensitive as you are. I have saved you. The idea of redemption being bought with a great price. It's just a huge one. The Apostle Paul had so much confidence. Not because he was brilliant intellectually. Not because he was a powerful speaker. But he had so much confidence because he could say as he says to the Galatians. Galatians 2.20. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
We are the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Which is why I can look at all the threats to the church from all different angles and just look and go, what? You're kidding me. It's like a mouse taking on, you know, just a lion or something. It's pathetic. That's not going to happen. Sometimes when we forget redemption, we don't know what redemption is. What are you left with? You're left with nothing. I watched a video which was designed to recruit ministers into the church. For me, I, I honestly, it's difficult for me to think of something that's depressed me more than watching that video because it was shiny, happy people. It was wonderful. But it, it reminded me of um, the army videos you used to get to recruit you to the army. Come join the army and, you know, see the world, play lots of sports, meet lots of nice people. It just left out the bit about killing people and dying and, and so on. And the reason that you join the army to defend your country and so on. It just made it seem like a really cute career option. And the same with that video of come into the ministry and you get to travel the world and you get to be nice to people and you get to be the center of the community. You know, in that whole video, I, I think God was hardly mentioned. Teaching the Bible was never mentioned. I thought, this, this, is, this is what we've come to in the church? And I tell you why I say that. Because the greatest thing we can ever have to offer anybody is to tell people the word of God, which says the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. I think everything that we do, everything in terms of the practical and, 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 and helping the poor and everything, all of it stems from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And if you don't have that right at the very core, then you're just dealing in poison. You're not, it's just empty and a waste of time. God says, don't be afraid. I've created you. I've redeemed you. And I have called you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Now, later on in verses five to seven, he says, don't be afraid for I am with you. I'll bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar. My daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. I love that. Look at that. Look, look at that. Even that little phrase. I, when I was going through this, I thought, you know, I could, it's not even verses. I could take little phrases in here and preach series of sermons on each little phrase. Look at this little phrase. You are mine. When you marry somebody, that could be said in such a bad way, couldn't it? Gotcha. You're mine. And it could be such a cruel thing. But this is a different thing. You are mine. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. It's God saying to his people, you belong to me. You are mine. I think that is just an absolutely wonderful thing. I think it's something that's really almost impossible to conceive of. In every religion in the world, people will go, yeah, I've got to serve gods or gods. I've got to try and work my way. But the notion of God saying to us, you are mine, in the sense of being loved by God, being cared for by God, um, being called by God. Called by name. It's as though one of the great doctrines in the Bible is adoption. I, uh, we were hosted by... Um, 
wonderful church when we were in Ohio, and they gave us a, a, a guy who was meant to look after us. He was meant to follow me wherever I went, just to make sure I had whatever I wanted. I tell you, it was great. You should try that job sometime, you know. Water, please. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I, honestly, I was going to test him and, and ask for just like opal fruits or something, bottle of whiskey, whatever. And I'm pretty sure he would have got it for me. Um, it was, it was just, it was a strange experience. But he was a lovely, lovely guy, and I loved talking to him. And he he told me that he had been born in Korea, but was adopted by a family from Alaska. And he'd taken that family's name and been brought up in that family and become a believer. And I think that's a lovely, lovely picture that we have. I think that um, the Lord adopts us and gives us his name. And that's very important when you consider how important his name is to him. We are called by God. Christ's ones, the followers of Jesus, his sons and daughters, male and female, called together. Verse 2 again we are accompanied by, accompanied by God. Um, <clears throat> let me just put that on. To, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, what's interesting about this verse is, you will note there is no promise of removal from the waters or promise of removal from the flames. The only promise is the presence of God. The redeemed go through fiery trials. Those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I am the Holy One of God, he says, and I will be with you. You may be in the flames like Daniel. You may go through the floods, but I will be with you. Do you know what? In in a sense, it would be lovely to belong to a religion which, in which anything bad that happened to you, you um, God just took you out of it and protected you from it. But can I tell you what is better? What is so much better is when you go through the flames, God is always with you. We are accompanied by God. Verses 3 and 4. We are ransomed by God. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba for your stead. Egypt was given. In what sense? Well, God said, let my people go. This is referring back to Moses. Let my people go. And they wouldn't. They would not let his people go. And there was a price that was paid for that. One of the Puritans, I can't remember who, but it sounds like John Flavel, whom I love, says this. The Lord takes such care of all believers that he values them more highly than the whole world. Although, therefore, we are of no value, let let us rejoice in this, that the Lord sets so high a value upon us and prefers us to the whole world, rescues us from dangers, and thus preserves us in the midst of death. We've been paid for. We are ransomed by God. We've been, it's an extraordinary thing. Back again to the value that we perceive on ourselves. And verse 4 says this, you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. It's not a wonderful thing. If you're married to somebody and they have a possessiveness of you which is not restricting and destroying But it is, they actually do mean it when they say, I love you. 
Sometimes, I think in, in the culture that we've grown up in, most of us in Scotland anyway, um, we child will say to their mom and dad, I love you. But kind of when you become older, a teenage boy or man, uh, saying I love you to someone, uh, it doesn't, you know, and uh, these can be really difficult words to say because in some ways they're so overwhelming. But how extraordinary to hear in all its depth and all its meaning, God saying to us, I love you. We find that difficult to believe. I think we do. I think we find it really hard to believe in a specific and real way. And I love this. You are precious and honored. And I'm sorry, but the word precious for me has been spoiled by Lord of the Rings forever. Um, but, you know, my precious. <laughs> it's Gollum. You know, the ring is the, is the precious thing and so on. So one or two of you looking at me blankly saying, what are you talking about? If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, you obviously can't be a Christian. Um, <laughs> but you, most of you have seen it, and you know what I mean, that the this thing that is so precious that he was, is willing to give his life for it. Well, in, in a strange kind of way, that's exactly how Jesus views us. We are his precious. We're not his trash. We're not his afterthoughts. We are the apple of his eye. I mean, it's like right at the very beginning in Genesis 1, God saw, made it. It was good. God made the earth. It was good. God made the birds and the animals. It was good. God made man, male and female, he created them. It was very good. In terms of the redemption, all of the stunning beauty that God has created in this world, all of this incredible beauty, you know, the most beautiful and the most precious thing to God is his people. And when we see our own ugliness, we find that almost impossible to conceive of. And yet it is there. Why does God love me? I love the answer. I can't remember who gave it, the child who gave the answer. Um, God chose us because he loves us. That's the end of the discussion. Why does he love me? See, I find it, that there are Christians, I, in fact, I got a letter this week from somebody who'd been converted uh, fairly recently and uh, was very thankful for some aspects and was writing me uh, and said, um, but the one thing I can't, I said, I hate the idea of God choosing us because that seems so unfair. So I've begun writing a reply to him, but it's such a lengthy reply because in actual fact, if God doesn't choose us, you have to think about what you're left with. I think the problem is we think of choosing as being along the lines of if you're in a football, you've been picked for a football team, I want him, him, and him, but I don't want them, them, and them. It's by abilities and qualities and so on. But I don't know. I mean, imagine if you were in a marriage or something, and sometimes you look at your husband or you look at your wife, and you know your wife is really stunning and she's really lovely, and you're going, she chose me? You're kidding? How is that possible? You have all kinds of doubts and fears. Well, I think any sensitive Christian is going to go, how am I a Christian? How, how has God chosen me? I mean, I can understand her, and I can understand him, and I can understand those people in the past, but me? And God just looks at us and says, but I did, because I love you. Uh, Tim Keller, who says hi, by the way, and one day he will come here. <laughs> um, Tim Keller tells the story of a missionary in China, and I love this story, who was, who was, who'd learned Chinese, who was doing his utmost to bring the gospel to uh, a group of women who were prostitutes, and uh, they just weren't getting it at all, and weren't getting it at all, and then one day, he happened to preach on predestination, and they got it. 
Because for them, the only way they could see of them becoming Christians was if God chose them, not they chose God, because they were not worthy. And it's a wonderful insight, a wonderful thing to grasp. We are loved by God. There's no explanation. Don't look for the reason within yourself as to why you are a believer. Just be thankful that God has called you to himself. And then, oops, sorry, I need to go back a bit. I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. We are created for the glory of God. Bring my sons and daughters out from afar, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why are you here? You are created for the glory of God. Why is the church here? We are here for the glory of God. It's important for those of us who are Christians to grasp this because I think some of us live with a very faulty theology which cripples us because the faulty theology is we think that God is there for us. And it's the other way around. We are here for him and for his glory. And to get that right in our heads and in our hearts is very difficult psychologically. But when you do get it, it's very liberating. God rescues me not because of me, but because of his glory. I've called you by my name. You are mine. Unless God changes his name, we are safe. And so in verse 5, he says again, don't be afraid. And then he gives us a commission to go and be witnesses. Now, this is an extraordinary thing, I think, here, because we're told not to be afraid. Okay? Fear, what fear does, it turns us in on ourselves. Barry Webb says that fear chills our hearts and silences our lips and is the greatest possible hindrance to effective witness. You know that. You don't want to talk to your friends or your workmates or your family because you are afraid. The church compromises with the world because it is afraid. We want to be seen to be a particular way. We do want the Herald and the BBC to praise us and say, look how wonderful the church is as we continue to die. We don't want to stand against the flow. We're scared. Fear does that to us. And yet in, in, in this extraordinary thing where God tells us how much he loves us and what he has done for us, he then calls us to go and be witnesses. In verses 18 to 20, Uh, of chapter 42 he's talked about how the church is blind and deaf but here we're told lead out those who have eyes but are blind who have ears but are deaf the church is still called to bear witness god is calling his blind and deaf deaf church to bear witness isn't that extraordinary how does a blind person bear witness the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. First Timothy 3.15. First, um, Calvin, commenting on that, says this, It is therefore the duty of the church to defend and publish the truth, that it may be honored by posterity from age to age. Not that the Lord needs this assistance, but because in this way he wishes to prove and establish its truth amongst men. Nobody at any general assembly, at any Kirk session, in any church meeting, should ever be saying, What will the world think of this? What will people think of this? How does this fit in with our culture? Our one and only concern should always be, what does God really say? What does God say? And we will bear testimony to what God says because he wants us to. Even though we ourselves are blind and deaf in so many ways, what has been revealed to us, 
we will declare. Otherwise, we end up in verse 9. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. There are false witnesses. Here the picture is extraordinary. It's as though there's a trial, and God is on trial. And God calls in the witnesses of other nations, other gods, and so on, to testify. And he calls in his people, who he's called blind and deaf, to testify. God claims that he is God alone and he is accused of lying. With a chill, and I mean this, I cannot describe how this sent a shiver down my spine. I listened to a service that came from um, a church with the assembly, St. George's West in, in, in Edinburgh this morning. And one of the clergymen stood up and said and boasted that this church, it, we have, we've advanced so much. And he spoke about how there was ecumenicism with Islam. There is no God except Yahweh. And the people who are called to, to proclaim Jesus Christ are standing up and saying, actually there is. There are other gods. We're just, just, we're just one of many. And isn't it wonderful how we can all work together? And the answer is no. No, it's not. It's not wonderful. Because God is there on trial and he says, I am the Lord. And his people stand up and go, no, you're not. You're lying. You're one of many lords. Except those who bear witness to God stand up and say, this is what our God says. This is what he said in his word. This is what he foretold would happen. And it has happened. And God says, you are my witnesses. And the whole atmosphere is changed. And they are changed. God doesn't need us to bear witness for him, but he has called us to bear witness for him that he may be glorified. And therefore, this last section I want to entitle Jehovah's Witnesses, but that um, is not the best way because, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses are not witnesses of Jehovah at all. If you know the story of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know that they were set up by a man called Russell who was doing a Bible study. And one of the disadvantages of doing a Bible study on your own with a group of people when you're a personality and you don't hold to a confessional view, you don't have a church to account to, is when you get to the bits in the Bible you don't like, you say, hmm, I'll throw those out. So he didn't like hell, he threw that out. He didn't like Trinity, he threw that out. And so we end up with the Jehovah's Witnesses, who it's such an oxymoron of a name. Because they are not witnesses to the Yahweh of the Bible at all. They are witnesses to a 19th century cult. In what way are we to be God's witnesses? It's not that what we wish to be true is what matters. It's what is true. Israel's history is to be a witness. That What Jesus did is the witness. In fact, this passage is really summed up in Acts 1 verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you, this is Jesus, to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. It's such a wonderful privilege to be a witness. Because truth is on our side. It's not our truth. It's not our thoughts. It's not our culture. It's not our tradition. It is the truth as it is personified in Jesus Christ. 
And so people say, for example, on the whole same-sex thing, why are you so obsessed about that? I'm not obsessed about it at all. I just want to follow Jesus and what his word says. And when Jesus, whenever Jesus spoke of marriage, what did he say? Between a man and a woman. So I follow Jesus Christ. I want to help people who struggle with different aspects of sexuality, whether homosexuality or heterosexuality. That is not the issue. The issue is the truth. The great issue. There is only one Savior. There is only one name. There is only one God who is holy. And our witness is... Well, what is our witness? Our witness is that he is holy, and despite the fact that we are not, he has saved us. I don't think this passage is telling us at all that the Lord needs us, but it is telling us, I, even I, am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, and you are my witnesses, that I am God. And that's why it's so heartbreaking When any church, and I include the free church in this, when any church stands up and says, the Bible says this, but God actually got it wrong, and now we're more enlightened, and now we know better. That's a dreadful thing. Imagine standing up in court and accusing God of lying, and that is really what happens. So for us, I think that we have to take this, if we are Christian believers, And we have to realize that as we looked at in Ephesians 1 and as we sang in Ephesians 1, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He's predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. By the way, when Paul does this in Ephesians 1, he just doesn't stop. He just goes And he does this sentence that in Greek is ludicrous because it just goes on forever. But he can't stop himself. He doesn't bother with a full stop. He just keeps going. His praise of the glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see what Paul is doing? He's not trying to write a systematic theology, but in one sentence of praise, he's saying, this is what you get in Christ. And it's extraordinary. Why change it? Why water it down? Just testify to it. Speak of it. Be like the the woman of Samaria who just went to her friends and family and said, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. The best witnesses are those people who just believe and trust Jesus and it transforms their life. And as they tell people of that, it transforms their life again. The worst witnesses are those who are afraid, who say, well, what will people say or what will happen? I can kind of understand that. Uh, um, 
I said to Annabelle, as I mean, last Sunday morning, I was preaching to about three and a half thousand people. I said, I'm a bit nervous about this. And wise woman as always, she says, why? It's no different from St. Pete's. And it's true, it's not. You're speaking to 1,200 pastors. So what? It's 12, 1,200, 12,000. What's the difference? Same God, same gospel, same witness. Whatever your circumstances. See, this is what I love about this. Some are well known. Some of you may be well off. Some may be cursed with being a celebrity of some kind. You know, regarded very highly. But it doesn't matter because there are some who will feel themselves so weak and useless and pathetic and everything. And God says to all his people, you are my witnesses. I have loved you. I have called you. I have chosen you. I think that uh, we need to keep looking at who Christ is and what he says. I think these words that we read, we can read them as comfort passages, kind of blasé way that we can pin them on our walls and just leave them there. But they need to be somewhere else than just on our walls. They need to be in our minds and in our hearts. And we need to be absolutely astonished and astounded. You are precious and honored in my sight. I love the free church because it's quite egalitarian in lots of ways. We're the only organization in Britain still left with a Stalinist five-year plan. But, uh, you know, we're, we're very egalitarian in, in, in different things. And being moderator, everyone thinks, outside the church, thinks like, you know, you're going to be whistled off in a fancy car and, and wear robes and people are going to bow to you and so on. That's not going to happen. Um, that's, that isn't really how the church works. And I love that. I mean, it's good. People honor you. Of course they honor you. But what I love about this passage, just reverse it. This is God looking at his people and he's saying, you are precious and I honor you. God honors us. I I think that's an astounding thing. I, I think that's about as unbelievable a thing as you can read in the whole Bible. And yet it's there. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the flames, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What's your identity? If you're here and you're not saying, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, I don't know Jesus yet. Who are you? What is your identity? And how can you take any comfort in it? If you're a believer, let me tell you, your identity starts with this, that you are in Christ and you belong to Christ And everything else that comes out of that, everything else that you are, is affected by that. So please, be assured. Have that blessed assurance that you are Jesus's. You know, we sing sometimes, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That's true. But also, I think the greater assurance is Jesus saying to you, you're mine. You are mine. Have that assurance. Bear witness to Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. And expect God to work great things in this world, in this country, in this city, in his church, and throughout the world. Because God will be glorified. And the glory of God will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Even so, come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for its encouragement to us.
And thank you that just as Isaiah spoke to a people in the midst of a great tribulation and a great backsliding and great trouble, promising a Messiah who would come, so you speak to us today and you tell us of the Messiah who has come and that we are loved and precious and honored. And I pray for any here who don't know you that they would come to know you. And for those of us who do, Lord, forgive us our sin and heal us from our wounds, protect us from our fears, and help us to bear witness to you as the only Savior. Though the world may scoff, though churches may mock, Lord, help us just to point to you and to bear witness to your love and your grace and your mercy as we have experienced it. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.